I'm here today with Diana Butler-Bass. Diana is an award-winning author, popular speaker, inspiring preacher, and one of America's most trusted commentators on religion and contemporary spirituality, especially where faith intersects with politics and culture. She holds a doctorate in religious studies from Duke University. Her bylines include the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN.com, Atlantic.com, USA Today, many, many others. <laughs> She's commented on the media widely on all the major networks. And she, of course, has written several books, including Grateful, Grounded, Christianity After Religion, Christianity for the Rest of Us, and A People's History of Christianity. Diana has also spoken at many different Writing for Your Life uh, events, and um, it's always such a pleasure to have her uh, with us. So, uh, Diana, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you, Brian. It's a book birthday day, so it's always the happiest of days. Yes, yes. I mean, that's why we're here today. Actually, when we're recording this is the introduction of Diana's latest book, Freeing Jesus, Rediscovering Jesus as Friend, Teacher, Savior, Lord, Way, and Presence. And if I could, Diana, I'd like to read a couple of the endorsements that you've got for this book, because I think they're so outstanding. So here's one from Anne Lamott. One of only a few modern Christian writers who can absolutely blow me away with both spiritual insight and beautiful writing. She speaks for me in freeing Jesus as in all her books. That's just really a wonderful endorsement. I mean, Anne Lamott <laughs> doesn't say things like that, right? Very often. When I got that email with the endorsement in it from my publisher, I had to be picked up off the floor. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was so, I was so humbled and surprised and I, I, I couldn't even believe the re words I was reading on the page. So I feel very grateful. That certainly was not some canned, you know, thing, right? You know, and not that she would do that, right? But I mean, um, that, I just thought that was amazing. Um, and here from Bill McKibben, too, I think is another great one. With each new book, Diana Butler Bass goes more deeply into what it means to be a Christian now, in a moment when many can't summon the energy or the hope required. This may be her finest yet. So another really nice, uh, you know, I think, statement about this book, Diana. Yeah, and I... I think a lot of people don't know, but over the years, uh, Bill McKibben's writing, as well as his um, passion about em environmentalism and climate change, has been deeply inf influential on my thought and in my work. And um, yeah, it's, it's interesting because the vice versa has been true, as I've written about church and faith in the 21st century and how things are changing. I, I did not know... Um, that Bill was reading all of my books. And, uh, and so in the last uh, 18 months or so, we finally really talked about that. Um, and it's been a real joy to know that there was another author, person I admire so much, um, who had been influenced by the work I've been doing as well. And so I, I, I love that feeling of being together with great writers and the idea that we're healing the world um, from all these different angles. And so, yeah, I, I was very pleased with what Bill said too. Very well, gracious. He's a very gracious person. And, you know, the kind of community of other writers, you know, that, that you're with and part of, you know, Brian McLaren and Jackie Lewis and, you know, all, all the rest. It's just really a great to see how much you all support each other. Yeah. It's a, 
it's a strange thing as a writer, you spend so much of your time in isolation, you know, you just are working at your desk. And um, I'm an extrovert by nature. So the the working at my desk part is really tough. And I love being around people. So when we get a chance, you know, and, and, you know, visiting one another cities or being at a conference together, it's always such a gift. And so there is a real way in which this kind of larger coterie, I think of uh, Christian writers has formed community and we care about each other. And it also helps to deflate, I think, uh, some of the the pitfalls of writing around uh, competition or um, or feeling envious, you know, of other people's work. And, you know, I, I just feel like a cheerleader uh, for great books and, and, and great work and have learned a lot uh, from having colleagues. So it's almost, uh, it's, it's like a community, but it is spread out over the country. So since I like people so much, I'm always hungry for their, actual physical company i feel deprived of it this year <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> very deeply <laughs> well soon we'll be able to be back to that i hope so yeah i do too so tell us about this new book and how this came about i mean you've written so many amazing books how do you keep coming up with these <laughs> amazing you know results well it's funny you mentioned brian mclaren because uh freeing jesus uh, has a sort of a relationship to the new book that uh, Brian has out this year, um, Faith After Doubt. And the, the, they both emerged from pretty much the, the same place. Of uh, Two years ago, we were speaking at um, Ring Lake Ranch, uh, which is this beautiful, amazing place in the Wyoming wilderness. And one afternoon, we were sitting on the porch of, of this cabin and we were on, believe it or not, on rocking chairs, looking out over this beautiful uh, lake up in uh, the mountains. And we started talking about what we wanted to do next. And both of us uh, had turned 60. I was just barely there. Brian is a couple years older than me. And we were thinking about gather, what does it mean to be a writer to gather up the wisdom that we've, learned, you know, over decades. And so we started talking about developmental spirituality and different phases of our own lives and how we had grown. And we realized that there would be this wonderful kind of narrative framework you could put around theology or memoir and create um, stories that were resonant with the different stages of life. And so uh, we both kind of got intrigued by the idea, and I, I didn't realize until later we had both picked up the exact same idea, and we were writing from that perspective of that conversation at, in Wyoming. And so Brian wound up writing a larger book about uh, theology, faith more generally, especially in relationship to what happens when faith breaks down at these various stages, what happens when doubt you know, emerges. And um, I took a slightly different tact. And instead of writing about theology in general, I wrote very specifically about, about Jesus. So it's, 
books come from odd places and um, that's probably one of the, one of the oddest in some senses. And, and then, you know, what, what Brian and I discovered, we had actually been so influenced by this conversation. It, it wasn't until we were well underway in writing both of these books that we realized we were moving in a very similar direction. So the books kind of, if you have them side by side and you're, you're reading them, there's a way in which they almost sound like they're cousins book cousins as it were so that's a that's kind of where it came from and um the idea of focusing on jesus emerged out of a, a lot of conversations with my own publisher and the fact that i'd never actually tackled writing a book about jesus before so um it just sort of seemed right well to your point you know when amazon you know on their website will put different books frequently bought together you know, they've got your book and Brian's new book, Faith After Doubt, and Barbara Brown Taylor's latest book, Always <laughs> a Guest. The three of those are the package, you know, that they're promoting. So, you know, not, not surprising. <laughs> no, it doesn't seem surprising to me at all. And what, what, like I said, great company. I'm happy to be in it. <laughs> <laughs> it would make a wonderful dinner party. So, but that's the great thing about books, you know, in effect, is that, um, when you can't sit down at dinner uh, with the with authors you really like, you can actually create a dinner party in effect um, around the words that they share in the world. And so uh, that to me is one of the miracles of writing is that it always creates a relation. Good writing creates a relationship with the readers and and creates relationships between readers so that community then multiplies and everyone is welcome to welcome at that table. It's so. really true. I mean, I find this area to be so much less competitive than any other business that I've ever been in. Wow. And, and you know, part of it, I think, is, is just the people, the nature of the people. But part of it also is that, you know, if somebody's going to like a Brian McLaren book, they're going to like a Diana Butler Bass book, you know, and vice versa, and, and, you know, several others, too. So it actually helps <clears throat> if the authors cooperate instead of compete. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that, you know, it's not always quite so planned, but a lot of the people that I care about and who are, you know, really good writers, many of the names that you've already mentioned, uh, you know, they're very attentive people. Um, you know, you ask the question, where does this book come from? Well, you know, books come from conversations that you have with a friend sitting on a porch in Wyoming or um, they, you know, so why did Brian and I get to that point where we were talking about the exact same thing on that day? Well, it was because we were, paying attention, uh, paying attention to the flow of time, paying attention to our own lives, paying attention to what was going on in the world. And um, that's the, always the first step of a, new, of a new book, is paying attention to how the world is speaking to you, as well as how, how your heart is speaking to you. So it doesn't it particularly surprise me that writers who care um, about Christianity in particular is all these writers are Christian that we're talking about uh, Christianity in particular, but spirituality more generally, a lot of us oftentimes are hearing, you know, kind of similar notes that are sounding in the culture. And then it, it's not an issue that we're, we're writing the same book because nobody writes the same book, um, but we're taking the same material and running it through our our lenses and our experiences and creating a sort of a, 
a, a, a story that makes sense um, within the time in which we all, we all live. And so, you know, that's actually really quite important for, for freeing Jesus because when I sat down to write a book about Jesus, the first thing that came to my mind was, you know, what can I say? You know, <laughs> here's a guy who lived 2000 years ago. How many, a little bit written about him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how many books have been written about Jesus and why in the world would I even care to tackle this gigantic subject? And, and the thing that sort of propelled me as I moved into the project more deeply was, well, yes, but I've never written a book about this subject. I've never written a book about Jesus. And that means that the story that I have to tell hasn't been told or shared in the world yet. And it doesn't matter about those thousands of others. Um, I mean, those, those are great books and they influence me. But I mean, it, it, I don't have to think about there, that there's no space left for my book on a shelf, even with thousands and thousands of books. Um, because there's always space on a shelf for another another way of telling even a very familiar story. Well, I mean, I think that's really such a great example for, you know, newer writers because a lot of them, I think get a little intimidated about that, you know, that where's the space for me and everything's already been said. And uh, here's a really good, I mean, like, like we just said, I mean, how many books have already been written about Jesus and here you've come up with another one that's really good, really insightful. And Oh, by the way, given kind of the course of American Christianity recently, a lot of things that need to be said. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've thought about this so much in the last year. Yeah. I mean, there's so many ironies that are embedded in this book in certain ways. You know, first of all, the title is freeing Jesus and it was written during pandemic lockdown. <laughs> you know, and so, so there's this, this undertow of, why in the world is this woman writing about freedom in the time in which millions and millions and millions and millions of people around the world have felt the most constraint that they've ever felt? And so, um, so there's this, this story about what sets us free. And, um, you know, I, I, I had to think while I was writing, uh, and this doesn't actually show up in the book, but it certainly was in my heart as I was working on this project, is how many people in church history, how many really, truly great saints um, felt like they got to know Jesus better when they were in prison. And, I mean, you can literally go down the list of, of half of my heroes. You know, um, Dorothy Day, she's in prison all the time. Uh, you know, and... and uh, and that becomes sort of part of almost a spiritual practice for her in how she knows God, how she knows justice, how she knows Jesus more deeply. Um, Oscar Romero, um, you've got Nelson Mandela. You just, and those are just the modern examples. You go through church history and the people that have been most influential in my life are always the people who were uh, silenced by authorities, actually put in prison, um, somehow uh, forced through some part of their lives into isolation and silence. And it was in those places that some of their best theology um, emerged. So, so there was that thread of it for me as a writer, you know, writing a book about freeing Jesus, but doing it while I couldn't have my normal life. 
Um, and it became this really powerful spiritual experience for me that I, I hope the energy of that is in the pages. So, so there's that aspect of it. And then this other aspect that you point out so beautifully, while the book was in its very, 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 very final stages, just as it was all being sent off, you know, to the publisher, everything is finally done. Um, The act, the insurrection at the Capitol happened on January 6th. And to watch that on television and see, you know, how many of the signs outside of the Capitol were being paraded in the midst of this, you know, riot, had the word Jesus on them was really, um, you know, sad and, and shocking and hurtful to me. And I thought, well, this is very strange because in effect, these people who are acting this way um, very violently, um, I think in ways against the common good and politically destructive ways, they they kind of want to free Jesus too, because um, they are always that those same people are always saying that their freedoms are being inhibited. Then they want to be free, and yet they've come up. They have a different kind of a vision, I think, of what freedom means and what Jesus means. And so that vision that they presented on that day has become part of our cultural and political language. I'm afraid, and so my book really speaks something quite different than that about both freedom and Jesus. And, and so in that sense, there becomes an, and I, and I, I think it in some ways is the least overtly political book I ever wrote, but it probably is the one that has the greatest social consequences and therefore also political sorts of implications uh, that I've written, even though the, the subject is let is, is, I don't think I ever really, I, I do talk about the development of the moral majority in the book, but that's really about the only place where I address a specific um, political or social mm. movement. Otherwise wow. the book is quite focused really on theology and uh, the Bible and my and my own personal experience. Hmm. Hmm. So so both of those things are are really at play. This this personal sort of struggle between freedom and constraint that I was experiencing that we were all experiencing this last year. So I hope that people will resonate with the book there. But then also this this picture that is emerging in our culture of a of a Jesus that talks about freedom but does so in ways that are what I believe to be counter to Jesus's essential message. And so how do we free Jesus from the signs around the Capitol during the day of the insurrection and be able to talk about Jesus in and freedom in ways that are life-giving and add to a life of justice? So is unhijacking a word? <laughs> there you go. I, I don't know, but I like it. Because <laughs> it kind of feels like, you know, that's another way of saying freedom, a poor way, but I mean, you know, another way of saying freeing Jesus. Yeah, it, in, a, in effect, you know, it's, it, it really is. I, I do tell a story about um, when I had my first date with my husband, Richard, and uh, we, we were talking about all sorts of things. Um, he 
he loves Emerson. That was one of our major points of conversation over that brunch 25 years ago now. And um, one of the things he said in the course of that conversation was, um, you know, I'm really, I'm really glad to talk to you. And, and, um, you know, thank, you know, he really was appreciative that I was so open about my own faith journey and where I was. Um, And he looks and says, you know, I'm really kind of angry at the fundamentalists. And I said, well, why? And he said, well, because I feel like they've hijacked, he used that exact language. (laughs) I feel like they've hijacked Jesus. And um, it was at that point that, you know, well, the lunch ended and and I thought, oh, I'm going to go get him a book that I recently read that helps turn that around. And uh, I ran down to what was then uh, Borders in Santa Barbara, where I was living, and bought a copy of Marcus Borg's book, Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. Oh, that's great. Which is a book about unhijacking Jesus from from fundamentalists that was written in 94, 93. I didn't realize it was that old. Yeah, something like that. It's way, way early, mid-90s. And so I, uh, I, I bought that book and I took it over to Richard's house and it was kind of forward, you know, after your first date, giving somebody a present, <laughs> but I said, I, 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 he still got the copy of it down there, down in his office. And uh, I wrote it something to the effect of, you know, um, this book will help you take Jesus back from the fundamentalists. And so my book does a very similar kinds of kind of thing. It helps people take uh, the book back from, fundamentalist if that's what you need to have jesus taken back from uh, but it does so in a surprising way it does so i think uh without anger i think it 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 actually says that anger is probably not the most effective uh strategy yeah um, no absolutely yeah it I mean, really is a book about integrating our lives and um, learning to see our own stories with far more sympathy than we sometimes employ towards ourselves, learning how to forgive ourselves when we make bad choices and, and things like that. So it's a, it's not a book I would have written 10 years ago. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I mean, you and I are working together on another project about healing divides, right? You know, and so, you know, it's clear that anger is not the right way to do that either. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, I think that probably, just when you even say that, um, I think that probably one of the major things I learned while I was writing the book was how to stop, how how not to have a divide within myself. And uh, my experience that shows up in the book, because the book is what I call an act of memoir theology. So I take my life as the primary text and run the text of my life next to the text of the Bible, the text of theology, the text that involves Jesus, um, and put those, try to weave those things together. And in doing that, I talk about how I grew up United Methodist, so I was born into a liberal Protestant mainline tradition in the middle part of the 20th century, and then I became an evangelical, and uh, I chose that for myself. In high school, I started going to a church called Scottsdale Bible Church. And eventually, after about 17 or so years, I would say it was between 15 and 20 years, the, you know, even our own lives, sometimes it's hard to figure out the time frame. Uh, but it was almost two decades. Uh, I understood myself to be um, an, 
an evangelical. I'm for most of the time a pretty conservative um, evangelical. And so then a whole bunch of other stuff happened and I wound up being a very progressive Episcopalian, which is how people know me now. Yes, yes. And, and so what I did in this book is I went back into all those, those stories, those earlier stories, most of which I had not told in public. And I try to tell my stories of Jesus at these earlier stages in such a way that I was able to free myself from the kind of judgment I had put on myself. It's like, you know, when I talk about Scottsdale Bible to my friends, for example, who before this book was written, I would just sort of shake my head. And it's like, how would, how did I ever do that? You know, why would I ever join a church like that? What was I thinking? You know, and in a sense, I was cutting off uh, part of my own life, part of my own experience. Uh, but in this book, I literally give myself, gave myself permission to go back to being that 15-year-old girl sitting around a campfire in the backyard, somebody's house in Scottsdale, Arizona, singing, I wish we'd all been ready, um, and having these very sort of intensive Bible studies and witnessing to our friends in high school and all these things. And I, I went back to her, and I I realized why that was also important to me at the time and how much it had given me. And so I try, I've, I've never written about that stuff sympathetically mm. before. Wow. And yet here I was doing that. And I, I literally found a sense of freedom um, by forgiving myself. But what I was, what I, what I had not understood is that I was holding myself um, sort of, accountable for standards that would develop later for me intellectually and spiritually. And so I couldn't love the 15 year old girl anymore. You know, she, she was silly, you know, and she, and yet that's still me, you know? So I had to forgive that 15 year old, but I wound up just forgiving her for being 15. <laughs> <laughs> and once I realized that it was kind of wonderful. It was like, Oh, well, of course I did this because that was really, it was the most logical thing that I could have done at the time. And it made sense. And it was, it actually became springboard for becoming the person I am now. So, so there's a lot of that kind of work that happens in this book. And I was really tickled you know, because the, one of the first reviews that came out um, was from a reviewer in Kansas city. And he literally wrote in the review uh, that I was an evangelical. And I, I, I read that at first it was like, Oh my gosh, how could he get to that? Yeah. How could he come to that conclusion? And, <laughs> and then I realized I wrote about being an evangelical at a time when it's popular to bash evangelicals. I wrote about being an evangelical with so much sympathy that this reviewer thought that I still was one. Mm. Mm. And I, I went, Oh, well, that's actually, that's actually a great thing for a writer to have sure. accomplished, you sure. know, really. And so, so at that point I was, I just sent him a little note and I said, you know, um, I'm sorry if I confused you, 
<laughs> but I think I wrote about my own experience with so much empathy that you thought I still was an evangelical. And um, I, I, I'm not. Um, I said, I'm sort of, I'm proudly a liberal Protestant. And uh, he wrote back to me, he goes, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, wild. Yeah. So, so in a sense, you know, that's, I'm just, I'm setting Jesus free to, you know, roam around in my, my memory and my life as, as Jesus, you know, I sort of just gave permission uh, to all these different Jesuses I've known to show up again for me. And um, in that showing up uh, to teach me anew what I needed to know in this really difficult moment for our societies. Um so that's that's the book, and it wind, wound up being uh, far deeper and more vulnerable, I think, than probably I first imagined it to be. It's also very funny. People have commented to me that it's the funniest thing I've ever written. Really? There, yeah. yeah, there are some laugh out loud parts of it. Um, you know, when you're writing about a 15 year old sitting around a campfire in Scottsdale or something, <laughs> singing, singing. I don't even I, want to think about when I was 15 years old. Honestly. <laughs> yeah. See, if you can write about that with sympathy, you know, you really do. It really becomes kind of funny, you know, because sure. we all laugh very empathetically, you know, about ourselves, you know, at those, own, at those ages. So there's a lot of stories I tell that are funny for their idealism or their naivete, or just the fact that I was, uh, the person I was. And um, so, so that's great. And then there's, there's lots of tears in this book too. Wow. So, well, so anyway, that's um, what, a, what an interesting Jesus. story, right? I mean, interesting saga, so to speak, uh, you know, that you've revealed here. I mean, it's, it's much different than the other books that you've read. It is. Um, my, I think that my readers will recognize certain themes that reemerge, um, you know, cause there are certain ideas that should keep showing up in my books over and over again, ideas about tables and circles and hospitality and um, mysticism and some other things that are constant themes in my book. And they're all in freeing Jesus. Um, but it shows up in such a different way um, that I, I just really hope that this book functions as an invitation for people to, go back into their own lives to forgive themselves of what needs to be forgiven. And when you talk about healing our divides, I actually believe that when we can forgive ourselves, that becomes a step towards healing our public divides. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause so often what we do is we externalize the things that we haven't dealt with in our own hearts. We externalize what we haven't forgiven about our own experience towards others. And so if we can't forgive that 15 year old girl at the Bible church, you know, how in the world can I ever have a real conversation with a, you know, a 40 year old guy who thinks that Jesus told him to, um, you know, invade the Capitol. Um, and so not that I know that I want to have that conversation necessarily, but you know, somebody at the local church at a local church who, who sympathizes with that, um, you know, why that happened and does, doesn't see it in the same framework I do. So, so I, I think that forgiving ourselves, you know, that's why I think Jesus talks a lot about forgiveness. Forgiving ourselves is the first step towards a forgiveness that extends itself towards healing the world. Well, you'll be happy to see some of the chapters in this book, uh, How to Heal Our Device book, because they, they get at this area a little bit. Oh, good, because it's really important. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it is, that's one of the ways that we, we free ourselves is by forgiving ourselves and to tell that story through 
uh, my experiences of Jesus, you know, the one who embodies forgiveness. Um, I think that it's um, it's a deeper and more surprising story than even I knew while I was writing it. Well, it sounds like you've been very vulnerable, which you know is really admirable. As a writer, I don't quite know where else to go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can write from artifice, and you know what happens when you write from artifice. It, it, it you, you might even make a lot of money. Sometimes writers who write from artifice make a, make a ton of, of, of money on their books, you know. But um, I just can't. It's just, I, 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 it wouldn't, I wouldn't feel right leaving behind books that didn't come from my deepest places. Well, good for you. Good for thank you for doing this. You know, I think it's a really important book right now, and it, uh, I think I hope it really impacts a lot of people positively. Thank it, you, Brian. It helps them to rethink some things, you know, and from a fresh perspective. So, well, Diana, it's it's really um, wonderful to see this, you know, and, and thank you so much for uh, sharing, you know, the details about this and how it came about, and your thoughts about it with everyone, and 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 best of luck with the launch, you know, and, and I really hope that uh, it goes very well for you. Well, thank you. I love to see how words move into the world. And I always remember some wisdom shared with me by Nora Gallagher, who's a writer I knew in California a couple decades ago and is a friend. When, when I wrote my very first book, she said to me, Diana, always hold on to the fact that um, books find their readers. And so that's always my prayer on launch day from my friend Nora from so long ago is that this book, like my other books, will find find its readers. Well, I think that it will. I really hope that it will and I pray that it will. And uh, I hope you try to do that a little bit. So, <laughs> All right. Well, Diana, thanks again so much. Good luck with the rest of the launch. You know, um, thanks so much for all that you do. Well, thank you, Brian. Your support for my work over the years is so appreciated. And um, I'm grateful to sit in a circle of friends with you. Well, same here. My pleasure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>